Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello, today here I am here with uh, Janet uh, Home. I said Janet, and earlier after I told, uh, we talked to this, Jeanette. Jeanette Holm is an experienced, award-winning entrepreneur with 15 years' experience starting, growing, and buying and selling businesses. Jeanette is a, uh, passionate about building value in a business through innovation, systems, and empowering people so that the business can run itself. She's also successfully done that with all of her previous businesses in Sweden. During her time as an entrepreneur, Jeanette has created almost 10,000 jobs at the same time, over 1,000 employees at a single company. Her core strengths are strategy and vision, leadership, creating systems, order, and healthy finances, increasing shareholder value, and preparing a company for exit. She's currently a founder at Adventos, a small investment firm who buys and rolls up small to medium companies in Europe. Welcome, Jeanette. I'm honored to have you here today. Thank you. How are so, you today? I'm doing good. Sorry about uh, we, we just did that. I, I have this. I guess it's a theme. I, I for some reason I butcher everybody's name, no matter how simple it is. No, uh, no worries. <laughs> no so worries. one of the first things I always like to do is kind of get people to kind of know who you are and where you're from. So uh, so just tell us a little bit uh, about. Um, you know, kind of who you are, where you're from, what you stand for. And uh, let's just start with that. Sure. Uh, that was a, a small question. <laughs> well, I am uh, I'm 42. I live in Sweden. Uh, I have a beautiful family of a husband and two crazy energetic boys that are eight and five. So they take up a lot of my time and energy right now. Uh, I started my first company. Well, actually... Um, the first company I started was when I was 19, actually, because we had to take a class in school that basically taught you uh, how to start and run a business. And uh, what we did was that we decided to go to Paris, uh, to an area outside Paris called Les Antilles, where you could buy clothes really cheaply. Uh, so we went there, we partied, <laughs> we had tons of fun, we bought clothes, and then we came back to Sweden and we sold them for like twice the price and we were like wow this is fun so we did it again some few times and we had like a huge fashion show and business and that was my first encounter with being an entrepreneur uh, and it was also probably the most fun class I had in school so I think from there on I decided that I'm, I'm going to be an entrepreneur because this this is just way too much fun uh, and then I actually lived in the states for five years I did my whole university degree in uh, Santa Barbara and San Francisco, uh, studied international business, and then uh, I worked one year in San Diego. Uh, and that was a huge experience because I think what you guys, you Americans are very good at is to push people forward that wants to go places and give a lot of positive enforcement. And I started reading all these books like, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and yeah, tons and tons of books of people just making it and being entrepreneurs and being um, yeah, fulfilling their lives, dreams and stuff. So when I came back to Sweden, uh, I would say that my confidence had grew a lot. Uh, and from there on, I decided I was just going to be an entrepreneur and make it big like you guys do in the U.S. <laughs> it's interesting. We kind of have a, a little bit of a similar path. I've never been to Sweden, but I lived yeah. in California for a little while. When I got out of the military, I uh, got an offer to work for Lockheed Martin in California. And uh being in tech, that's just the place to be, right? Yeah. So I stayed in California uh, until I, and I, I've worked in San Francisco. I worked in Redwood City and stuff. But uh, I stayed there until I realized I didn't want to be in tech anymore. And then it didn't matter where I was. And I had family mm -hmm. here in the middle of, middle of the United States in Oklahoma that needed my help. So yeah. I moved here. You've, you've had a series of successes, right? You're, this isn't, you know, you didn't jump into mergers and acquisitions and start buying and selling companies uh, right away. You built some, uh, some yeah. significant companies too. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about the entrepreneur journey and kind of what led you up into 
built buying and building as opposed to just building from scratch. Yeah, so I uh, I started my first company when I was 27, and uh, at first I thought I needed to go into tech like everybody else in Sweden. So my first idea was very advanced uh, and uh, hard to get going. It took I wrote like a 50-page business plan. I talked to investors. I had a lot of partners, and after about six months, I realized that you know this is this is. It's not doable right now. I don't have the skills. I don't have the money. I don't have the knowledge. And it's too hard to get this going. It will take me years before I see a dime. So I actually found this book that changed the way I look at how you build your first business. And it's an American woman, Laura Langmeyer. You've probably heard of her. Uh, and the book is called The Millionaire Maker's Guide in Creating a Cash Machine for Life. So probably the longest book title in the world. Uh, but basically what she said is that the first business that, that you start has to be something that you know and that you can start making money of in uh, a month. And then uh, your job is to learn how to be an entrepreneur because that's the hard part, to learn all the skills you need to grow a business. Uh, so I did. So I went back and I thought, okay, what's the easiest idea I could think of? And she also said that you should look at what you've done previously when you were a kid and that kind of stuff. So, uh, And the second part of the idea is that it has to be an opportunity. So it has to be a simple idea, but also an opportunity. And right there in Sweden, and this was 2007 or 8, yeah, somewhere around there. God, it's so long. <laughs> now I keep forgetting. Uh, the, the government came out with these tax deductions for all... Um, services in the home like cleaning and gardening and construction and, and babysitting so the government pretty much paid half of the fee that the customer paid and also uh, there was really no competition uh, it was a new market the vat was zero at the time uh, and the employee tax of young people had also been cut in half so it was like a lot of opportunities there so I gave myself a month to start this company and it pretty much just exploded. And, and I think just in the first year, we did like uh, a million in sales. And I was pretty much by myself for half that year. So you can imagine how much I worked. <laughs> uh, but it just grew from there uh, up until we were over like a thousand nannies and had pretty much half of the market share in Sweden. Uh, and uh, I focused a lot on learning to build businesses, which meant I focused on building structure and building a strong culture and making sure my people could work without me and that the business could run without me, uh, which we're going to talk about more later. And after three years, I actually put a CEO in place and then I was pretty much free to do whatever I wanted to. So we didn't lose that much revenue, but it just felt like we were, yeah, hitting your head against the wall, trying everything, and the business wasn't growing anymore. Uh, and that's when um, we first started a cleaning company. And also, I figured that either we're just going to kind of dwindle or die now, or we grow ourselves out of this crisis. And we decided to grow, and I decided that we needed to start buying companies, uh, even though I had no idea how you did that. Uh, so I pretty much posted on Facebook and LinkedIn, hello, <laughs> I want to buy companies. And then I had like a lot of people reaching out to me. And one of them was uh, was uh, our biggest competitor in the nanny business. Uh, and we bought that company. And I think that experience was probably the biggest aha moment I had in my entrepreneurial career. Because overnight, I pretty much added 25% of revenue to my business I almost had more cash in the bank than I paid for the company and the company was doing about a uh, hundred thousand Swedish kroners in profit per month maybe that's like around twelve thousand dollars or something so it was so easy and it was so fast to grow and so cheap uh, and after that I'm like why haven't I done this before because growing organically takes a lot of time and energy and effort and resources uh, and this was just like a snap and you were you were a lot bigger and a lot more profitable uh, so then I started to really get into learning about how you buy businesses how you build and roll up businesses and create bigger groups uh, and I then joined the Harbor Club training uh, I also took Carl Allen's training and um, and we bought two more businesses uh, two 
So the first two deals I did were very successful. Uh, it was the babysitting group and it was also a gardening and construction group and it fitted well into our group. So we now had nanny, cleaning, gardening and construction uh, services. Uh, but then, then I, <laughs> I don't know if I got cocky or, or uh, just uh, was high on self-confidence or I don't know, but I decided to buy uh, a, um, a toy company. Uh, and it wasn't just being cocky because I didn't want to be completely immersed in this political risk that we had with the other companies. I wanted to branch out to other businesses that didn't have the political risk, but I wanted to uh, have a business that, that our customers still could buy from. So toys, we had a lot of kids' families, of course, so toy company made sense. The only problem is I didn't know anything about um, selling toys online, and the company I bought was way too small, uh, and uh, pretty much everything went wrong. Like the computers went on fire. We had to move the warehouse twice, and... After six months, I was so fed up with this company uh, that I actually sold it again. And um, and even though it was, you know, probably uh, not such a good deal, um, I didn't lose that much money, but I lose a lot of time and energy in it. Uh, I think I learned the most from it. So I think you have to make some mistakes too uh, in the process to become like good um, at what you're doing. But then in 2000, I think 17 or no. 2018 or 19, yeah, 19. Okay, yeah, I'm losing the years here. <laughs> I need to check when I did things. Uh, I actually sold all the five companies I had left to my two CEOs um, because I felt that I've done this for 12 years and I want to do it in different areas and in different industries and learn uh, new things. Uh, so I sold it to them and it was a very fast deal because I wasn't, uh, I wasn't part of any of the daily operations. And they got super happy. I got super happy. The staff was super happy. So it was a really good deal. And since then, I've pretty much been reading books like crazy, taking courses and figuring out, you know, what to do next. Uh, I want to take a year off first just to completely relax. Uh, but now we're up and running again. And I've joined forces with some other people. Um, one guy from Norway, two from the UK and one from Germany. And uh we come together in the Advantage group. And since everybody wants to do the same, like buying and building groups of companies, we figured that we could just do it together. And we started looking at companies together before this summer. And I think this fall, we closed our first deal, which was a pretty big HVAC company in the UK. Uh, and then there's some other deals that's going to close, I think now in January and February. Um, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, but I think... I, I thought I was a really good entrepreneur when I was running my first five businesses, but I realized after taking the break and reflecting how much more I could have done. And I also realized when I started to, to look at buying businesses, what a huge gap it is between the entrepreneurs, how they view, view the value of their company and the people that are trying to buy the businesses. And we pretty much look at values completely differently. Um, but for me, it's an advantage to have been on both sides. Uh, so I started thinking about, you know, how to bridge this gap, because the reality is that 80% of all businesses for sale, they don't get sold. Um, and that's a shame for all the entrepreneurs that have been, you know, working like crazy and sacrificing a lot to build these nice businesses, but they don't understand how to build value. Um, and from that, I kind of created this and this, um, my own kind of definition is, I call it the POX formula, uh, because it's the five areas that create the most value in a business. And POX stands for profit, owner dependency, cash, size, and structure. Uh, so POX and formula. <laughs> and, and I started to, to write and think more and more about this. And I think if people understood this, that it could bridge the gap, you could sell the business, but you could also get more value from the business. So you went from like creating businesses, yeah. <clears throat> sorry, stumbled into what, what they are, they even have a phrase for now. Yeah, I think you might've been doing it before they named it the aqua hire, right? Where you acquired <laughs> a, to, to increase revenue, you acquired a higher, better, but you know, another, uh, you know, staff or whatever. So yeah. you did act, uh, you know, you did acquisitions to grow, 
before it was kind of popular at that level. Like big companies have been doing it forever. Yeah. But the small to medium companies are just now kind of making that, you know, popular, at least, you know, publicly, you know, going out and talking about it. I'm sure it's been done on some scale for a long time. And you took what you learned from that and, you know, built what you built, sold it. And it sounds like you actually put together kind of your own little, I don't even call it a venture capital or your little venture company where you're yeah. teaming up with other people. <clears throat> You're, now you're buying businesses to to grow them. Are you going to do the aqua hire to bolt on things to them and yeah, and, yeah uh, sure. sure. I think I mean the PE firm and the venture capitalist industry they've been doing this for such a long time, and it kind of pissed me off when I realized that they are the ones making all the money. We are the ones like the entrepreneurs that creates all the value, and that's another gap <laughs> that yeah, there's uh, we should close. <clears throat> uh, and we I think the entrepreneurs we need to learn how to how to think smarter and build value so we can actually get paid for, for everything that we're creating. And it's just a mind shift uh, that I realized when I was at the Harbor Club, how you think about businesses and value creation uh, and, and you work from there. So I'm hoping that we will see a lot more entrepreneurs doing this in the future. In Sweden right now, it's it's crazy with all these PE funds coming out and even in the stock exchange, like there's one company that started buying construction company 11 months ago, and they're valued at like 16 billion. <laughs> the stock has gone up 8,000% in like a year. And they're just buying companies. They're not even doing that much. And another company that just went to the stock exchange in like one of the biggest IPOs ever, uh, they just have just bought companies for five years in different industries, like no nothing related. And the stock is valued so high it's like it's crazy i mean yeah there are some has to be some bubbles here right now but the truth is that that the, we have to we have to understand this like the entrepreneurs have to understand this and use this to our advantage and it could be so much easier for us to build businesses and to get to the next stages if we just also learn how to buy businesses as a growth strategy i think it's a huge uh <clears throat> sorry about that i'm still clearing my throat here from a cold mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's a huge advantage for, for a couple of reasons. That gap is there between like what the PE firms and the uh, institutional buyers are doing, but they're also ignoring a lot of businesses, the small to medium businesses that would be yeah. very valuable to something you and I would build and stuff. So that 1 million to you know US dollar, 1 million revenue, you guys call it turnover, or at least they call it turnover in, in Europe. So 1 million turnover to $10 million turnover doesn't even open up a PE and e firms or an investment institutional investor's eyes, but it yeah. can make a significant dif difference to uh, you know your HVAC company or one of my companies to bolt on or you know merge with or buy one of those you know, things. So it's a huge opportunity that the small to medium business owners out there, you know, need to uh, need to be aware of. And the second side of that is, at least here in the United States, we have a, a an aging business owner population. There's a huge yeah. amount of baby boomers who are in their 70s now, still sitting at the seat as CEO of their business, and uh, they don't have a succession plan. They don't know what they're going to do. And if they don't work uh, with other businesses, other small businesses, and 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 work in this mergers and acquisition space, both you and I are in, there's a huge chance that not only do they go, you know, the business go away, but the jobs that they created go away. The legacy they created goes away. Those employees are out scrounging for something else to do. So um, I think there's the opportunities all over the place inside of this. It's kind of why I jumped from being a real estate investor to doing acquisitions and mergers is I see a huge unmet need and that's a need to, to maintain jobs, maintain small, medium businesses here in the United States. And I see that that's, that's everywhere. So in the U S you also have, you know, Barack Obama set up this program where you can borrow money to buy businesses for sale, because I think he saw how many businesses are for sale and they, they're not getting sold. So you can actually borrow money from the government with the government kind of backing it up. Uh, to yeah. buy businesses. I wish we had that in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, they do a 80-20 here. So if you got 20% yeah. down, the Small Business Administrator uh, Administration uh, will guarantee it. So it's just, <clears throat> it's kind of weird. The, the banks still loan the money, 
but it's mm. federally uh, backed by the Small Business Administration. So, um, you know, you could go to one bank and they tell you no, and then go to another bank with the SBA and, and, and they would do it. So there is some a local bank uh, say in the acquisitions and mergers process uh, for using the SBA, but it, uh, I haven't done it. It's, uh, that would be referred to as a leveraged buyout LBO. Yeah. And uh, that's just one of the strategies I'm not uh, interested in. Um, yeah. I mean, there are several, several ways to buy businesses and also depending on what kind of business you want, I guess uh, how you would do it. But, should we talk about the the Pox formula? Because I think if I explain each uh, each area, people will understand what actually drives value uh, in a yeah, business. Yeah, I think that's a great place to go. Uh, business owners uh, really, I think there's a huge disconnect there as as what they think their business is worth, and then how to get how to get it to how to get what they want out of it by aligning with what you or I or any other. Uh, acquire or somebody who wants to buy a business is actually looking for. So yeah, yeah let's let's do, let's go through the your model there and let's let's talk about it. Yeah, so so I think to understand where this is coming from is to understand what buyers or companies are actually looking for. And there's two main things: they're looking for opportunities, but they're mostly looking to to reduce risk. Uh, so when we look at buying companies, <clears throat> we look at the risk factors and see if uh, if there are a lot of risks that we can't um, that we can't mitigate or change, and uh, and that could be potentially really fatal <laughs> going forward, uh, so the so the first um, the first area is of course profits. Uh, you want to buy well, you can also buy this, um, businesses that are not profitable, but that's kind of like another area. Uh, I think most buyers look at, you know, profitable businesses and the value of the business is usually set by a multiple of profit. And this multiple depends pretty much on, you know, the size, the industry, what you're doing, how fast you're growing, but it's going to be some multiple of profit. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that you are as profitable as you can be. And the, uh, I think it was in Carl Allen's course. Uh, I've also seen this formula in all kinds of different core, uh, books, but um, there's basically seven level levels levers. I think it's called uh, of business growth and profitability. And if you just increase each of these levers by ten percent, you will increase profit by one hundred and fifty-eight percent. So small improvements in each areas will yield a lot of profits. So I'm just going to go through them fast. And if I was a business owner and I had a business, you know, I would jump in and I would see how can I improve each of the levels, levers, you say levers, levers, right? Levels, right? Are you talking about lever as in like lift to like, uh, to, uh, to get leverage? Yeah. Leverage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, lever. Or yeah. Each area or each yeah, component. <laughs> so the first component are, uh, of course, leads. How many leads are coming into your business? And the second component is conversion rate. How many of these leads are being converted into customers? Uh, the third lever <laughs> or component is average transactions per year. So how many times do your customers buy from you per year? And the fourth one is what is the value of each trans transaction? Um, that the customer buy, like the sales sales amount. Uh, number five is gross prof, profit margin, which is pretty much revenue minus cost of sales or cost of goods sold. Um, number six is operational overhead as percentage of sales. And number seven is the lifetime value of your customer. Uh, so pretty much how much is customer worth during the entire time that is buying from your company. So say that you take those seven areas or levels, levers, and you increase them by 10%. So 10% more leads, 10% better conversion, 10% better profit margin. Then that would actually yield you 158% more profit. And just doing 10% on each of these areas isn't super hard. Uh, I think everybody can do it. And there are even books, I think it's Bradley Sugars. He has even written books about how to 
like six, I think he has like 60 ideas for each of these levers, uh, how you increase them. Uh, but I think it's just coming down to just brainstorming, sitting down and brainstorming, how can we increase this? How can we increase this? So increasing profit is not only about, you know, revenue minus costs. Uh, it has a lot of other components. Uh, so that's the first thing I would focus on as an entrepreneur. So not just focus on growth, but actually focus on having a really profitable company, especially as you come close to wanting to sell your company. And it, it's not enough to have really good profits the last year because most buyers look at the last three years uh, because you don't want to, you want to have like normalized EBITDA. Uh, you're not just, you don't want to buy something where you have called dress the bride <laughs> in the last year to get more money from it. That feels very weird if you have like profit like this and then the last year is like shoof, super high. And so the last three years, I would really focus on profit before you sell your company. And now the second area is the O, since it stands for ownership dependency. And I'm so surprised uh, when I've been looking at all these companies that I haven't found a single company where the CEO isn't the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is still the CEO, still the most important company person in the company, which pretty much makes your company unsellable uh, because you, the entrepreneur, are going to walk out the door and it's going to be huge risk for anybody who's taking over. Um, so it's really important that you have built yourself out of your company and that the company runs without you. Uh, um, how you do this, we're going to talk a little bit further down in structure. Um, but you need to put a management team in place and you need to put a CEO in place. And if you haven't done that, your business is almost unsellable, uh, I would say. Yeah, so, I, I, I run into that one too. And one of the biggest concerns yeah. I have is, is there's a, it takes time. The three years you're talking about, that three years could be used to separate yourself away from that. The biggest yeah. problem is <clears throat> if I've got a, a business and it's making, I don't know, a million, two million dollars a year, and I've got 60 key customers, if you're in there running at day-to-day -day operations and you sell it and leave, there's a huge chance a large percentage of those customers are still there because of the relationship with you. And that's mm -hmm. how they see it. So now yeah. if you separate yourself away from that and you run it at a distance for a while, they'll actually learn. And a lot of people are worried about this, but I think I, in most cases, the, the other owners, the customer, the owners of the customer companies, the customers will learn. They're not there because of the owner. They're there because of the value the business provides to them. So yeah. you got to dispel that myth that's there that's on the other side. Your customer believes he's there because I want to do business with, you know, Jeanette. And, um, and it's not the truth. Like I want to do business with, you know, uh, your business. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's huge. And I, I, I say, I was just laughing when you said that, cause, um, I just went through an ordeal where we, we talked to over 200 business owners in less than six months, probably less than four months. And even inside of those, some of these are doing five, six, $10 million a year. The only in one or two cases was the owner even trying to separate himself in yeah. almost every case they were in the mix yeah and I've, i looked at businesses where where the whole business was the owner and his wife that was it <laughs> and they and if you, they sell then they're gone and there's like there's nothing left there's no value and the risk is huge so there you really have like the risk is going to take over and people are not going to want to buy a company that's that risky it doesn't matter how good of a profitable nice company you built um, the risk is too high. So, uh, so yeah, when we come down to structure, I'm going to talk about how I did it, how I built myself out of my businesses. And there's a lot of good books out there uh, that I used uh, to do it. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But C is for cash. Uh, and uh, this also has to do a lot with risk. Um, but cash is involved usually when you value business, then the excess cash, excess <laughs> cash will uh, go out to the entrepreneur. But you have, if you have a business that's tying a lot of up, a lot of cash, if, if it requires a lot of working capital to grow, then that's a pretty risky business because that means that you need more and more money uh, the bigger you get. And, and what is working capital then? It, 
it has three components. It has to do with accounts receivable. So how fast the customers are paying you. So if the customers are paying you fast, then that's really good. If they're paying you slow, that means you're tying up a lot of cash in the business. And it gets even worse if the next component, accounts payable, um, is, is large too. So accounts payable is, is uh, money owed out to your suppliers. So if you have a situation where you're paying, you get paid very slow, but you pay your suppliers very fast then you're pretty much the bank for your customers and your suppliers, and you're tying up a huge deal of capital in the business. And um, I actually had a roofing company call me up and say, hey, are you willing to invest in roofing? And I'm like, what are you going to use the money for? And it says, he calls it the float. I was like, well, yeah. what's the float? He goes, I have, to ma- I have to pay for my supplies, my labor, and everything, and wait for insurance companies to pay me. And he currently has, you know, a company's doing, he's doing about three, three and a half million dollars a year in revenue. Uh, Because small kind of local roofing, Um, you know, he ties up anywhere from five hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars in cash, waiting for that transaction. And he can't right now. He's at a state where he can't do the next roof because he doesn't have enough cash to go get supplies and pay labor uh, because he's waiting on a payment. So uh, I can see where that's critical. So yeah, and it has to do with the risk, and it also has to do with you know you having to put in more and more money the, the larger the business gets. And the third component of the working capital is, of course, inventory. So if you have a lot of inventory that you bought, but it's not moving, then you're tying up a lot of cash. And so a lot of times where where a lot of the colleagues I have buy businesses, this is the one of the first areas they go uh, and look and see. Uh, and usually they can they can improve all of these three areas and and uh, release a lot of cash uh, again. So it could be an opportunity if you see that, you know, these companies not doing this very well, but we think we can improve it, then it's an opportunity. But if it's not, it's it's a risk and it's going to devalue your company or make it that nobody wants to buy it. So it's definitely something to look at, like how much cash is being tied up and how um, and what's the cash flow like, because it, it comes really dangerous to buy a business and and then you don't have any cash flow. And I think most businesses go bankrupt because they don't have any cash not because they're not profitable. So yeah, I agree. Most, most, most entrepreneurs fail because of cash flow, not because of profitability. I I agree with that hundred percent. So, so the next area is uh, size. And this is really, this was one of the things I thought was really interesting when I started learning about building groups of companies, because uh, I could take Sweden uh, as an example. I think in the U S you have different, um, levels that you get to, but in Sweden, basically, if you have a company that is doing between you know, zero to fifty million, so zero to five million dollars in revenue, and it's a, not a tech company, it's a regular company, then it's usually valued around three to five times profit. Uh, if you get above five million, and in the US maybe it's ten million, then then all of a sudden the institutional buyers, the financial buyers, they they get interested, and just by crossing this line, all of a sudden you're worth eight to 12 times profit. So the size, so, so basically if you would buy two uh, companies that are worth $4 million each and put them together, or maybe three of those, then uh, even if you did nothing, you would have double or triple your money just by becoming bigger. And this is what a lot of the PE firms do too. And, they used, and this company that, that went public that I talked about, they used to want the size because then the multiples increases. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of small business owners should really start buying companies uh, to get above the level where the institutional buyers are getting interesting because then you will get a lot more money than if you try to sell below this line. And that's kind of what you were talking about earlier too. Uh, with the, so this is very interesting. And the fastest way to grow is to buy other businesses. Uh, and, and it's actually really easy to buy a company. I mean, most of us have bought a house. It's not that much difference. You know, you, you make a little map, um, like what kind of companies can I buy? And it could both be, you know, like I did, I bought in the same, uh, same industry as complementary services that I could cross sell to my customers. 
but it, it could also be you know similar companies like we're only buying HVAC companies or only buying software companies. Uh, it could also be like for example we're we're buying this uh, gardening company right now, and they're really good at anything green it's called like green jobs and gray jobs so gray jobs are like the where you build the stone walls and the stone in, in the gardens and stuff and they are doing the green jobs and they're turning down a lot of gray jobs because they can't do it so if we would buy a gray company a gray garden company then, then uh, and we had the green garden company then we can cross sell those services um so i think you just have to get creative like what kind of business do you want to create? What kind of services does your customers want and need? And how can you help them? And you just go and buy that. And with that, you can buy you can buy your future CEOs in your new company. So you can you can um, build yourself out of your companies, and you can buy more profit and cash flow and reduce your overhead. So it's there's a lot of things you can do. One of um, the other one of the other plays in that is your suppliers, right? So if you're yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Maybe I, I, may, I go back to one I was looking at uh, about a year and a half ago. If you're a concrete company and you um, make hinges and doors and stuff like that, then a welding shop, right? Or the rebar, even like the supplier that you have for your rebar, you know, this one concrete company we're looking at, they owe their rebar company a million, million yeah. and a half dollars. And uh, that owner was aging too. So my game plan, plan was to once I acquired one is to reach out to the other and ask, you know, are they interested in uh, doing something? Now you've got a whole nother line of business. You can sell to other people, but you actually yeah. have one of your you know, key suppliers, you know, to boost your revenue and stuff. So I think that that's an opportunity too. That's also going to grow, you know, your revenue and your profit because mm. you have same customers you can sell more to. So it comes back to the seven levers <laughs> of profitability. Uh, and it's fun. Like you can create your, your dream company and you just pick the parts and you buy them, <laughs> put them together. Uh, and after that, you reach out to, you know, you make a list of your dream companies that you want to buy. You reach out to the owner and say, hello, I want to buy your company. And you start talking. And then it's a matter of um, getting to, to the right terms. And then you do uh, the diligence where you, it's kind of like when you buy a house too, that you, you check that everything is... Uh, is working and is as the owner says. And after that, you're closing and you're signing contracts. And it's not that much harder than that, actually. And there are a lot of courses and a lot of books and a lot of podcasts about how you do this. So I think it's just a matter of changing the mindset of what is possible and then you just go out and do it. Awesome. So we were on size. Yeah, uh, and then the last one is the structure. And this is about building a system instead of uh, a company that is dependent on you. Uh, so I think there were three books that I used to build myself out of my business. And the first one is Emit Revised by Michael Gerber. And that was pretty much has to do with how, how do you build a McDonald's? <laughs> like how do you build the, the business that you can copy and copy and copy uh, with the systems and, um, and the structure and everything. Uh, and that was a really good book. Uh, and now I think Mike Michalowicz has come out with a similar book, but a little bit twist on it. That's called Clockwork. And that's also a fantastic book, how to build a business that is not dependent on you. Um, then uh, another important, uh, what do you call it? You need a structure, but in order to be able for the structure to hold, you also need a very strong corp um, company culture. Um, and I think the best book on that is called Built to Last by Jim Collins. And the reason you need a strong culture is in order for the entrepreneur to have the guts to release all control, you need to be sure that the people you are there, you have there in your companies, think like you, act like you, have the same values as you, and will represent the company in the way that you do. And I think once you have that in place, it's a lot easier to, to kind of release the reins and let the other people take over. So for me, the culture and the structure go very much hand in hand. Uh, and once you have that, uh, it's not as scary to let go. And on top of that, I think another thing that's really important is to start measuring everything. So you pretty much, you're, mes you're measuring your processes, you're measuring the flow of the business. 
and you're not just looking at the, the balance sheet and the income statement because then it's pretty much too late. Like we were measuring, you know, how many people visit our website, how many pe people called us, how many people booked an appointment, how many of the appointments became actual, you know, babysitting and customers starting. What's the average, you know, invoice and all that kind of stuff. So we could pretty much in the end see that if 100 people came into our website, that meant this, this much money in the end. Uh, and when you have that kind of measuring flow in the business, you also feel a lot more in control. And it's very easy for the CEO to run that kind of business because they're going to see, okay, all of a sudden, uh, the people that book appointments, they don't become customers. There's something wrong with the quality here. Okay, then I focus on that. Or all of a sudden, we don't have any leads coming in. What's wrong? And then you focus on that. So um, so you can you can f very quickly see if something is going going in the wrong way before you actually see it in the money, <laughs> in the income statement at the end. And that also creates a lot of uh, like calmness for me as the entrepreneur, because I know that I can get weekly reports, how the business are doing. I can see all the KPIs, the key measuring points. Um, and I can see that the business is running smoothly. So I think if you have, if you're measuring everything, you have it in place, you have your structure, you have the culture, then it's time to find the CEO. And I trained all my CEOs from pretty much the bottom up. So my CEOs had pretty much been on every area of our company. And it's also recommended in the Built to Last book that that's how you should do it because you want your CEO to be a culture bearer. Uh, so, and they need to understand all facets of your business. Um, and it, it has worked, it worked very well for me. Um, I tried once to take take in an external manager and it was awful. <laughs> like he couldn't help anybody, he couldn't answer questions because he hadn't been there on the floor answering questions, talking to babysitters and customers and that kind of stuff. Um, and also it's fun. It's fun to take young people and mold them into becoming uh, really good at what they're doing. On your babysitting business, it's interesting. There's one here, and they probably did it after you, that really became, um, I think they're a national franchise now. It's called Seeking yeah. Sitters. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, but uh, it started mm -hmm. here in Tulsa, and yeah. it was the same model. So I'm wondering if they read an article about you and what you did there, because yeah, it's, it's the, it might have been something where, like, uh, one of the good – and this, the reason I bring this up is this is a great thing for all our entrepreneurs listening. If you watch – articles from other countries and see what's really working there a lot of times you can apply that here right yeah. so it's very possible that they seen something that, like you know article or something of what you did in uh, in sweden and ran with it right uh but they were very successful it was uh, uh i don't know if they're even public now or not but uh they, they did really well with sea considers and it was the same model it was uh you know Doing background checks, verifying the babysitter, making sure they're safe. And they yeah. even had, I, I think they, they did some runoffs on it, meaning they, uh, uh, I think they even had like a house sitters and dog sitters that mm -hmm. they would do on, on top of babysitting, right? So yeah, that's cool. But I think actually you guys were <clears throat> a lot earlier. Like most things, like Sweden look a lot, we, we look a lot at the US. And uh, the ones that are trending in the U.S. will come to Sweden <laughs> a few years after. Uh, it works both ways, though. Yeah. Yeah, except the tech world is really uh, popping right now in Stockholm. Uh, so here we're we're at the forefront. But uh, I think babysitting has has. Uh, I mean, when I lived in the U.S., I worked as a babysitter, and and so it has been a long for a long time. But I think in Sweden, it wasn't really an industry because it was so expensive because it's so much taxes on you know, services in Sweden, uh, that it wasn't feasible until the government stepped in and kind of reduced uh, the tax burden on, on these kind of services. And then it was, you know, booming. I mean, it was before, but then you kind of paid the babysitter under the table and that kind of stuff. And uh, so it wasn't really professionalized until this incentive came. Awesome. So we're at 45 minutes. Let's uh, talk yeah. a little bit about what you're looking for now and how people reach out and find you. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you're going to post somewhere in my LinkedIn profile and email and that kind of stuff, or if I just say it here, 
like yeah there so i think the best way is just yeah to reach out to me on linkedin uh right now uh, we are looking at you know hvac companies in the uk for sure uh, we're looking at software companies in the uk as well because we're buying a software company there uh, we're looking for we're buying another software company in norway so there we're also looking at software companies and information management system companies i think they're called uh, for me personally, we're going to buy a gardening company here now, not only landscaping, they actually have like 45 machines that are plowing snow and like building whole gardens for like uh, bigger building projects and that kind of stuff. So this is more B2B landscaping stuff. Land like, prep, uh, commercial landscaping then, right? Yeah. And site think, prep yeah. and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Versus my, my previous company, that was more like taking care of people's gardens at home uh this is bigger and it's quite fun with the machines and stuff i never owned companies that have machines but it, yeah. uh, they look fun uh but but um but we're also looking at of course opportunities uh, we want to do roll-ups we really see like the leverage is it's incredible yeah when you do roll-ups uh, the value just go up like crazy like we talked about with the size but also using you know, cross synergies and that kind of stuff. Um, so we're looking at all businesses that that uh, we see opportunities in. Um, of course, all, also looking to uh, JV, joint, do joint ventures with really cool people uh, that want to do the same thing uh, and just to have fun. Uh, I think my first business ventures, I was a little bit too serious. <laughs> uh, you know, it was like uh, life or death. Uh, I was young and it, uh, it really exploded too fast for me in the beginning. And I was very just overwhelmed <laughs> for like 10 years. Uh, now I'm like, I hopefully that I'm a little bit smarter and more mature and have more um, like experience. So I just want to find really fun people, fun businesses and just, pretty much have fun doing it. Uh, that's how it should be. Otherwise, it's not worth it. So one of the things we've been talking about in this whole uh, you know, conversation is buying businesses to grow your business, buying businesses to merge them together and, and uh, create a space in the industry. One thing we didn't mention is it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive, right? You've bought and sold no. some businesses. It's very likely you have some money put away in investments and stuff. It's not common. And I don't know about you, you know, you, but it's not common for acquisitions or mergers guys. We're not writing checks out of our own bank accounts to no. do this. Right. No, Usually no, it's, yeah, it's either creative, like a very yeah. creative structured thing where the owner's financing it or it's ba uh, bank backed or uh, personally, I'll reach out to other investors and raise money before I would yeah. uh, liquidate assets or, you know, take money out of, you know, stuff I've already invested in other stuff to acquire another business. So, Yeah. And I think that's uh, it's another misconception that it's really expensive and it's not because you, you're leveraging uh, the owner's money, seller financing, you're leveraging banks, investors and other creative things. Uh, so yeah. it's, uh, and I think that's why the PE firms have made so much money. They're using leverage <laughs> on everything. Uh, so that's why, yeah, it's a mind, mindset shift uh you can do and and if you want to go into the route of buying distressed companies then i know people that are getting companies for free pretty much because the entrepreneurs are so tired and just want to get rid of their company so i know a lot of people that have bought companies for a pound or, or nothing and just pretty much taking them over of course that's that's another game like uh, you know roll, rolling what turning around distressed companies yeah. I think right. we are looking we are looking more at really profitable businesses, but I think that's also a very lucrative way to go. And if you already have a profitable profitable business, then I think it's easier to buy distressed businesses as well. Yeah, I would venture into the saying that be very cautious buying a distressed business if yeah. you've got a profitable one because it doesn't take a very big hole to sink both ships, yeah, right? <clears throat> right. But yeah. you can also acquire something really affordable and grow you know you were talking about 10 percent increase on on the levers you could really do a much larger increase on those levers yeah, by yeah. buying somebody primarily for their customer base their asset list and uh you know 
you're not necessarily having to turn them around as much as just offering their clients a different solution with your product, right? So Yeah, but an, uh, another tip, I think one of the mistakes I did with buying the toy company, and I think one of the most important lessons is to start with something that you know. It was the same thing when I started my first business. So when you start buying your first businesses, uh, start with what you know. Uh, that's uh, like a really, and then focus on being good at the skills you need to buy and roll up businesses. And once you buy a business, don't change too much in the beginning. <laughs> like people want to go in and they just want to change all this kind of stuff and you're going to scare off everybody. And then you've scared off the whole value of the business. So just take it really slow, charm the pants of <laughs> everybody, give them some I don't know, Christmas holiday party or something and just, just take it slow. Um, otherwise, uh, it will not be good. And I think most people fail not buying the business. That's very easy, but actually after you bought the business because that's when the real work starts and you want to make sure you, you're not just ruin, ruining uh, the whole business afterwards. Yeah, it's, you could be really disruptive in a heart, heartbeat, right? Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting is a few of the businesses I've evaluated, you get in, you start meeting some of the other, um, I'm going to call it operators, the employees. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a guy on from the Harbor Club. <clears throat> he acquired something uh, that he, he did a long time ago, but he acquired something and he went in and cleaned up a little bit and he let go of the office manager. Well, it turns out the office manager was kind of the general manager. She ran mm -hmm. everything, right? So nobody could do any more travel. I mean, everybody was lost without this person. And yeah. he was thinking, we don't need somebody sitting at the front desk answering the phone. I've got a call center. We're going to, you know, put in place. He already owned this other thing that was a call center and uh, the phones will just be routed there. What they didn't realize is all the other stuff that that lady did, right? Uh, order the office supplies, uh, arrange everybody's travel. She was pretty much an executive administrator or uh, assistant for everybody, you know, that, you know, needed to travel, needed to do sales calls, needed to do everything. And it was very disruptive. <clears throat> and when he went to get her back, she already had another job and wouldn't come back. Yeah. So uh, I agree. Uh, be careful what you change until you really know what's going on. Tell us, um, is there anything, like what's one key point you want? If you could leave everybody with just one uh, key point, what would that be? Well, that, that is the POX formula. <laughs> like focus on profit, uh, the company not being dependent on you, the cash, the business not tying up so much, so much cash, focus on growing the size by buying other businesses and the structure uh, so that the like a well-oiled machine and i think you will do very well um and i'll be happy to help just reach out uh i love helping entrepreneurs and uh, if you have a business you want to discuss then yeah just reach out awesome well i thank you for being on the show i'm going to end the stream now hang out with me for a minute we'll chat after yeah. and uh i thank you very much for having you uh for thank being you. here with me <laughs> all right the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to tiepm.com. That's T-I-E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.